All right, hello. Morning. <clears throat> My name is Jonathan Kreitz, and I'm a mission partner here at Neartown Church. Thanks, Matt. Can we, uh, real quick, say thanks to Matt and the band for leading us in worship this morning? It was really good. Uh, I've only, it's the only second time I've done this, and the first time, Matt also led worship that day, and it was a real blessing, so, for a team. Um, like I said, my name is Jonathan Kreitz. I'm a mission partner here at Neartown Church. Some of you may know my wife, Kristen, who's right there, or our sons, Lincoln and Henry. We've been mission partners here at Neartown since the very beginning, and it's extremely encouraging to see our sons grow with this church. Uh, I'm thankful to be allowed to speak from the pulpit, although if I'd known how last week's sermon or what the topic was going to be, I might have uh, asked for a different Sunday. But uh, if you missed anything from that sermon series that Russell just finished, which was called Unique, you can... Uh, Go to neartownchurch.org and look at the podcast section. Andrew gets those up as quick as he can every week, and it's uh, a great tool for you to grow in your faith and knowledge of the Lord. So, I don't want to waste much time with an introduction, but I do want to say a little something before we get started. We know and believe here in Neartown in the power of God's Word. It says in Hebrews that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So keeping that in mind, let's open with a word of prayer. God, we thank you for every chance we have to spend time in your Word together. Please use this time to teach us, to encourage us, and to equip us for your work. Amen. Today, I want to give you a message that I hope will encourage you. I want you to know that you are in a covenant with Jesus, and that it means something. It means identity, it means friendship, it means protection. And we're going to look at a great story from the Old Testament to illustrate this. But the main idea is that being a Christian, a little Christ, it means something to your life today. Uh, if you need a Bible, please raise your hand and we'll get you one. Rob's got some here in the back. Anyone? No one's seen the needs Bible today. Okay, well, if you've got uh, one of the church's Bible here, uh, please pay, turn to page 238. We're going to be in 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel. It's going to be uh, chapter 16. The Bible is made up of several different genres of literature. There's historical narrative, there's prophecy, there's letters, poetry, wisdom, there's all kinds of different styles of writing in the Bible, and what we're going to read today falls in the historical narrative. It tells a story of multiple generations of people over time, and we're going to start with the highlights of the beginning of the time of kings for God's people, the Israelites. This is going to be kind of rapid fire, but we need to get some context before we can get to the meat of our story. So like I said, let's turn to chapter 16 in 1 Samuel. At this time, the Israelites, God's people, were under the leadership of their first king, Saul. Saul was a warrior and was leading the Israelites in their war to claim the promised land. However, he had become full of pride and God became displeased with him as the king. And because of his disobedience, God sent Samuel, the prophet, to the house of Jesse to anoint a new king. So we're going to read here in verse 10. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. 
And Samuel said, Descend and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So that's one of our main characters we're going to look at there today. Um, We're going to talk about Saul, but also David. And this is where we see David has just been anointed to be the new king. But he's not the king yet. So next we get to a more famous part of the story, David's battle with Goliath. Um, most people know this story, even if they haven't studied the Bible or been to church. Most everyone knows the story of David and Goliath. If you flip over to the very next chapter, chapter 17, we're going to see that Saul has led the army of the Israelites out to meet the Philistines, but they have brought Goliath with them. Down in verse 48, we'll just skip to the very end because, like I said, most people know this story. It says, when the Philistine arose, that's Goliath, he arose and came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, and he took out a stone, and he slung it, and it struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone stank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. So just like that, David kills Goliath. He was the only one out of all those men that had the courage and the faith to meet Goliath in battle. This was such a shocking turn of events that Saul's response is to say, Who is that? Who is his father? I imagine most of the other soldiers there felt the same way. David had gone from zero to hero instantly. He was a celebrity overnight. And not only that, but... With David and Goliath, the stakes were life and death. We did not read this part of the story, but Goliath had been defying Saul and the Israelites and blaspheming God for several days before David fought him. He had completely stopped the advance of the Israelites. So for David, this fight was not win or lose. This fight was win or die. Now, what we also haven't read yet is that Saul has a son, and his name is Jonathan, which... I like that one. So Jonathan is also a warrior and the heir apparent to the throne of Israel. If anyone out of all these people who are celebrating David for his victory over Goliath should have a bone to pick with David or hate him or dislike him, it should be Jonathan. But David has been anointed to be the new king and has become an instant hero to all these people. So what did Jonathan do instead? We see here in the beginning of the very next chapter. This is one of our core texts for today. This is one of the you know, places where our main idea is going to come from. So just pay attention as we read this carefully. As soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. If you skip down to verse 3, it says, And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. Now, if we stop and kind of think about that right now, that is so foreign to us. You know, I don't, when I meet someone that I admire, you know, let's say I met J.J. Watt or something at Starbucks, I want to introduce myself, try and become friends, and then give him my clothes, you know. This is very different from our culture. But it, this, this, this means something to the, everyone who is there, and definitely meant something to Jonathan and David. So we'll come back and talk about that in a little more detail later. But just what you need to know is that in the aftermath of beating the Philistines, Jonathan has sworn friendship to David here. Now after all this, Saul had David brought to stay with them in the palace. And David continued to grow in popularity and fame. He was fighting the remnants of the Philistine army and was having success everywhere he went. 
And this really began to get at Saul. It ate him up. And it didn't take long for Saul to take his frustration out on David. If you look a little further down in this chapter, chapter 18, verse 10, it says that the very next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand and he hurled his spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. So try and, okay, picture this in your mind. They're in the palace, which is probably pretty nice. David is playing his guitar to try and soothe the king. And Saul, in a fit of rage, is literally going to take like an eight-foot spear and pin him to the wall. I don't know. To me, that's just like, I don't know. It's very hard to understand how crazy that would be to see someone try and stab someone else with a spear. But in the next chapter, we see that Saul plotted various ways to kill David. And then none of them were successful. If we go to another chapter over in chapter 20, we'll have the other core text for today. So turn to chapter 20. It says here that there was going to be a royal feast and that David was expected to be there. He and Jonathan uh, made a plan for Jonathan to go and see if Saul had gotten over his anger or if David was still in danger. And here's how it went for Jonathan when David didn't show at the dinner. Verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse for your own shame? The son of Jesse is David. And to the shame of your mother's nakedness. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul his father and said, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Okay, someone needs to take the spears away from Saul. All right? It's like you get on his bad side and he's going to just stab you at the dinner table. No big deal. So Jonathan went out and met with David after their plan didn't work and told him the bad news. In verse 42 he says to David, Go in peace, because we have both sworn to us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And David arose and departed, and Jonathan went back to the city. We won't read the rest of the story here today. But it does continue on. David lives the life of a fugitive, almost like Robin Hood. He escapes from Saul again and again, and even has some chances to kill him. But David shows him mercy instead. Eventually, Saul and Jonathan and Saul's other sons are killed in battle. And with them dead, David, the anointed one, becomes a king and rules for many years. So... When I read this, part of my reaction is like, why did the story have this outcome? Why did Jonathan risk his relationship with his father, his place in the court of the palace, and his very life to keep David safe? It goes back to that part I pointed out earlier, that Jonathan had sworn a covenant to David, a friendship. Most of us probably think, big deal, you know, what does that matter? But in this time and in this culture, swearing a covenant was about as serious of a commitment as one can make. One way of understanding the Bible and studying it is actually called covenant theology. It's a study of the various covenants in the Bible and what they reveal about God and his redemptive plan for the world. Just for a few quick examples, we can look at uh, two, the covenant with Noah and the covenant with Abraham. We all know the story of Noah and the ark, but when God saved Noah and his family from destruction during the flood, after they were safe and the waters had receded, God swore a covenant, a promise, 
to them and all future generations that he would never again destroy the earth by flood. And as a sign of his promise, he placed his bow in the sky, the rainbow. That's our sign that God will keep his promise not to destroy the earth by the flood. And with Abraham, God promised, promised him in his very old age a son. And through this son, Abraham would be a father of a great nation of people through which all the earth would be blessed. We see this being fulfilled in the birth of his son Isaac and also in the life and work of Jesus Christ. So, we could look at many more examples. The Bible is full of covenants. But the important thing to note is that covenants are solemn promises that are usually marked by some sort of sign. So what sign did we see when Jonathan and David made their covenant? Well, first, Jonathan gave him his robe. What do you think that means? I think it means that Jonathan was saying that David was Jonathan now, or Jonathan was David, whichever way you want to look at it. That he identified with David. You can think about it this way. I mean, the NCAA basketball tournament is going to start this week. And as many of you know, I'm a diehard Texas Aggie. That's right. Uh, And earlier when I was writing this, you know, they still had a chance to make the tournament. So I had written in here, I can't wait to wear my polo to work this week. But it doesn't look like they're going to make it now. So if they had, and if they were, then I would be wearing my Texas A&M polo to work this week. What would it mean, though, if my coworker gave me his Longhorn shirt instead and made me put that on? It would look like I had switched my allegiance, you know, God forbid. That is what's going on with the exchange in the robes here. Next, uh, Jonathan gave him his armor. And I think, you know, what does armor do? It protects. So I think Jonathan here is showing that David is under his protection. And finally, they exchange weapons and belts. Weapons are for fighting. And I think this part shows us that David, Jonathan would fight for David, that their enemies now would be mutual. This all played out practically in how Jonathan kept David safe from Saul during the dinner party. And when Jonathan made a covenant with David, it meant something. It meant action. So you could be sitting there thinking, so what? You know, that's a great story. They, they made this covenant with each other. What does it have to do with me? Well, I mean, I think we could take these Old Testament stories and get some value out of them on their, on their own. They have their own merit. We could get some application if we wanted, instruction from our lives from this story. And also, this story with Saul and David and Jonathan has intrigue, action, giants, assassination attempts. It's epic, like Lord of the Rings or something like that is epic. But what is also great about these old stories is that we have the luxury of reading the New Testament back into them. We can see a story, see how a story, from a culture very distant and different than ours can be amplified by the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, if you follow after Jesus, if you're a Christian, then you are in a covenant too. I know we don't often use that kind of language today, and we definitely don't practice it like they understood it, but make no mistake, you are in a covenant with the Lord. We read that passage every Sunday, that when Jesus and his disciples met in the upper room for the first communion supper, he said that he was inaugurating a new covenant. So if we are now covenant partners, is there any way that this example from Jonathan and David can shed light on how we should act? Let's take those signs again, one at a time, and we can see. First, the robe. Jonathan put his robe on David. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says that Christ humbled himself by taking the appearance of a servant. That means God stepped down out of heaven and humbled himself to look like one of us, to be one of us. The word... Jesus, as it says in John chapter 1, became flesh. He lowered himself to become like us so that he could be obedient where we have been disobedient. And he could be faithful where we are faithless. 
Also, keeping with the idea of putting on the robe, Paul exhorts us over and over to put on Christ. Have you ever heard that term? In Galatians 3.27, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Romans 13.14, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh. Ephesians 4.24, Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Can you maybe now see a little better what those verses mean? It's kind of like something you have to imagine, I guess, putting on Christ. But just like David could have identified himself with Jonathan and his friends, now we can identify ourselves with Christ. And what about the armor? Does Jesus protect us in our covenant? Again, Paul gives us an answer. It says in Ephesians 6.11, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the power of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Okay, and finally, the exchange of weapons. Okay, Paul quotes the Old Testament in Romans 12. Can we see God fight our battles for us? He says, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You'll notice back in our original story that we never see David strike at Saul. He kills lots of other people. If you want to see some gruesome bloodshed, just continue to read those old narrative books in the Old Testament. David killed a lot of people. Uh, But he never killed Saul, even when he had the chance to. And it could have been justified as self-defense. Jesus has given us the example of loving our enemies, of turning the other cheek. We should let justice, when I say justice, I mean like true justice, not clouded by our own failings, come from the Lord. As far as what you should take for this, from this, I want to encourage you to respond in two specific ways. Okay, the first is to identify. We've been talking about that a lot. But we find our identity today, most of us, in a lot of different places. Finding our gender, where we're from, where we went to school, what we do. Some of you may even find identity in your failures from the past. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you should identify with Him above anything else. If you believe he loves you, that he died on the cross for your sins, yours personally, then just like Jonathan and David did by exchanging their robes, you should put on Christ. Put on his righteousness. You have to, you know, there's a sense of action there. You have to enter into this covenant. You have to do your part. We're very self-reliant, self-identifying people. It is hard for us to get into that mindset of identifying with another person in this way. It minimizes our individuality. But we need to if we want to have the peace that comes from a relationship with God. The second thing I'd like to encourage you to do is to commit. If we have identified with Christ, then we should be striving to be more like Him. To put away the way we used to live, the way we were before, even if it is at a high cost. From our example, Jonathan's covenant with David was very costly. It put him against his own father. put him in physical, in physical harm. And the same can be true for us. Committing to Christ as a covenant partner, it can be costly. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says there's a cost to his discipleship. If anyone, anyone, comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus doesn't really leave room for anyone else. 
It's when we are waking up, when we are lying down, and in every moment in between, we should be committing to honor what God honors, to love what God loves, and stand against what He stands against, just like Jonathan stood with David. I know I said we wouldn't really read the rest of the story for David because it goes on for way too long. But there is an epilogue to he and Jonathan's story. Um, Eventually, Saul and Jonathan, and Saul had other sons too, they fell in battle against the Philistines. David is made king of part of the kingdom, and eventually he unites it all under his throne. It takes years of war to make this happen. But through it all, God was faithful to his anointed. And when the fighting was all done, it says that David remembered his covenant with the house of Jonathan. You remember that we read that they also swore the covenant to their offspring too. David remembered the household of Jonathan and he asked if any of them still lived. He was told that one son of Jonathan survived, but that he was now crippled. And this crippled son had been in hiding because he was scared that Jonathan might kill him, or David might kill him. See, the son was young when Jonathan and Saul died and his nurse had actually dropped him while fleeing the palace. David ordered that the son be brought to him. The crippled son was terrified. He was found out. He was afraid David was going to kill him. But, in fact, it was quite the opposite. You see, David, in recognition of his covenant with Jonathan, restored to this son all the lands that the household of Jonathan had lost in the war. Not only that, but David made a place at his table in the palace for this son and treated him like his own, like a son of the king. And that once there, the story goes that the new son, this new found son, never left the table. Can you see in this story a reflection of how God treats us? He sought us out. Crippled as we were spiritually, emotionally, the true son of David brings us in and makes a spot for us at the table of the king of kings. He adopts us into his family like we belong there the entire time. If you're here and you don't know about this adoption, you don't know what it's like to be rescued from your crippled state, then please hear that Jesus Christ came into this world to seek and to save the lost. He lived a life that you could not live. He died for you. And by the power of God, he was raised from the dead three days later, and he stands ready to welcome you into the family of God today. Please confess your sins. Respond in obedience like Christ did. If you want to talk more personally about it, we'll have some people up here in just a minute if you want to talk to someone or you can seek me out after the service. But I just want to encourage you today to identify with Christ and to commit to Him.